So if we could stand for the reading of God's Word. Paul says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head, but every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head, for she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman who does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to have his head covered, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However... The Lord is, however, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him? But if a woman has long hair... It is a glory to her, for her hair is given to her as a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I ask, Lord, that you would help me to uh, preach and exposit the text that we have before us this morning. I pray, Lord, that it would be clear that it would be applicable, that we would all learn and grow from this text. And Lord, I pray for myself, Lord, that I would not shy away from the truth, that I would balance truth with love this morning. And I also pray, Lord, that it is not the opinions of man which matter, but only what your word truly says. We pray this in your name. Amen. Amen. Let's be seated. So as some of you might imagine after reading that text, it's been quite a couple weeks for me. Because... This text um, is not short of controversy. And not only is it not short of controversy, it's also not short of interpretation and different interpretations, which means that I got to spend a long, a good deal, a good number of hours and days pouring through how these terms are used In the Old Testament, how they're used in the New Testament, how they're used in extra-biblical literature, um, how they're used in the Apocrypha, how they're used throughout history, 
how passages like this have been interpreted throughout history. Um, it was a lot of work. And I think I have come to, uh, to a place that I am ready to teach the text, which is obviously what you would expect of me <laughs> to be at that place. Um, but before we do that, we have to look at the context here. The context is Paul had just been talking about Christian liberties, but now we have a transition taking place. Paul is now moving from the topic of liberty into the topic of proper order within worship. So while we have liberty in Christ, God still demands proper order within worship. And even within worship, you know, when you cross cultural boundaries and things like that, there is some liberty and tradition in this. But we do not have the freedom to go against God's prescriptions. We don't have the freedom to go against his commandments. We don't have the freedom to completely neglect the tradition of the church, nor do we have the freedom to ignore God's design for creation. And that is what we're going to begin discussing this morning. But before we get into discussing this text and the the gender roles in worship and how even the way that we look and dress play a significant role even within the worship service, let me start with a sobering quote that can give you a glimpse into uh, my trepidation into going into this passage. This is a quote uh, from a pastor who says, Modesty is a controversial issue. No matter how the man of God approaches this subject, he will be judged either as a legalist or a libertarian by his audience. It is inescapable. Speaking against current fashion or popular trends is always difficult and costly, but still, the preacher has been called by God to that course, a course that divinely steers him toward a head-on collision with the thinking and ways of the world. And so that, let's pray um, again, (laughs) and then we'll go into our text. Lord, I pray for the service this morning, and I pray that as we go into a text like this, we will see that your word is beautiful. And when we seek to understand it, you will explain it to us by your spirit. I thank you, Lord, for this text, and I thank you for the joy of being able to preach it this morning. And I pray, Lord, for wisdom and courage and love this morning as well. In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul begins praising the people of Corinth for holding to the traditions he taught. He says, now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions, right? Just as I deliver them to you. So he does this as a way to encourage him before he kind of moves into this topic of corporate worship and order within corporate worship. And really a lot of which in this case is going to be uh, a bit of a rebuke from Paul. He's going to be counseling them, and he's going to be counseling them firmly in some areas, and then when we get to places like the Lord's Supper, he's going to flat out rebuke them for the way that they have mishandled the Sunday uh, worship. We don't know these traditions exactly that Paul's talking about, 
uh, but we can be confident that they are apostolic traditions that pertain to the order of worship. But regardless, Paul moves from this into his assessment of gender roles in the church starting in verse 3. And this won't be the only time he brings this up uh, regarding worship. This isn't even the only letter where he brings things and topics like this up. But he starts in verse 3, he says, But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. So let's begin at the top here, and you're going to have to bear with me this morning. We have a lot to cover, and we have quite a few details to go over, so we may be a little bit longer than usual. Um, Christ is the head of every man. The Greek word used here is kephale, and it is used in two distinct ways in this passage. It's used as authority, and it's also used as a physical head. And Paul interchanges between the two as he goes through this passage. But in this case, when he's talking about Christ being the head of man, he's using it as authority. Christ is the authority over every man. Every man in the church does not answer to his own authority. He answers to the authority of Christ. Many times people read a passage like this and they see Paul talking about head coverings and they they go right into the the role of women and the focus on women. And, And don't get me wrong, we'll get into that. That's not to be ignored. But what tends to be ignored is that Paul begins by giving attention to the men. Men, you have a responsibility within the church. You submit to the authority of Christ. As we will see, there is nobody in the church without authority over them. For men, that authority is Christ. And so, um, therefore, they will be judged, men in the church, on how they submitted to that authority and the responsibilities that Christ has given to them. Then Paul says that every man is the head of a woman. Now, some translators have husband as the head of a wife, but that's not the best way to translate this verse. There's no indication that Paul has moved from males in general to marriage, to a marriage relationship. Um, It's a good way to smooth over the text, but it's not a good translation of it. Paul is saying that men are the authority over women. And as we're going to see, Paul appeals to this from the establishment of creation itself. What, this, what Paul is not saying is that any man can go up to a woman in the church and just tell her what to do. Try that and see what happens. Right. We get that. Okay? <laughs> what Paul is saying is that some man is always in authority over a woman. And, and this is, let me parse that out for us. This means that the husband does have the authority of leadership over his wife within the marriage. This means that the father does have leadership and authority over his daughters within the family until they are independent. 
And when they are independent, they therefore then submit to the authority of the male elders within the church. There is nobody who is ever without authority in the context that Paul is lining up here. Everybody always has to answer to someone. And I know that for some of us this might be uncomfortable, and a big part of that is because of the influence of the world. See, Corinth is not free from cultural syncretism, right? The ideas and philosophies of the world have been plaguing the church and been influencing, and let me tell you, I think we've said this almost ad nauseum, but today is no different. In fact, I could go through, and I I had to go through, quite a bit of the historical context of why we look so different culturally than other places of the world and even the history of the church in general. And I can tell you, it's because of the influence of the world that has crept in unnoticed, and now it is simply just a presupposition. It is hard enough to teach men and women about authority within the home, let alone the general authority that exists between men and women. Um, But we have to recognize that for both men and women, the, the charge against us is that if we refuse to listen to what Paul is saying here, then the onus is on us, right? The rebellion is on us. We can't pass it off. I have to answer to the Lord. I have to answer to Christ for the way that I led my family, for the way that I help lead this church, for the way that I lead in the home. I don't get to pass that off on anybody else. I don't get to pass that off to Michelle. I don't get to go before the Lord and say, well, Lord, the woman you gave me, right? That was Adam's sin. That was Adam's fault. He passed the buck. He did not lead. Well, likewise, right, men, we don't have that, that um, freedom to pass that off. And likewise, women, you don't have the freedom to pass it off either. You have a role within creation. And that role within creation now plays out within the home and it plays out within the church as well. But we need to have our minds transformed about what submission actually means. Right? What it means to have authority over us. Because we, in our culture today, see submission, and our first thought is oppression. We see it as a negative thing, and that's a lie from the devil, and it's been a special deception for women since the fall in Genesis 3. This is what God said. God said to Eve, the curse on you is that you will desire the role of your husband, and he will rule over you. There's a relationship there where there's clashing. But male authority does not mean that men are more special than women. In fact, as we'll see in this passage, that in many ways, um, there is a special uniqueness that women have that men do not, that make them in a special, unique role within creation. But it does mean that men and women have been given different roles and distinct functions within the created order and within the church. And this is why Paul then compares it to the relationship between Christ and the Father. 
Christ and God, right? And God is the head of Christ. Is God more superior than Christ? No. Christ and the Father are one. They have different roles, right? The, the, the terms that the theologians like to use here is ontologically and economically. You don't have to remember those, but let me just explain it real quick, right? Economically means the way that it plays out, the way that it functions within a dispensation or within an economic. When Christ was on earth, right, he submitted entirely his whole life to the will of the Father, It does not mean that Christ was less than God. It does not mean that he was less than the Father. But that was his role to play in creation. Similarly, this is why Paul makes this comparison, and he's going to talk about this uh, in verse 11 as well. Men and women are not ontologically different. We are both equally image bearers, and we are both equally saved in the same way by the grace of God through the cross. But economically, in the church and in creation, we have different roles. And when we blur the lines of those roles, we're not just, you know, changing things up because, you know, we, we just want to, you know, our culture is just a little bit different. When we change those roles, we are foundationally rebelling against the way that God has created men and women, to function in harmony with one another. We complement each other. So this didn't make Jesus any less God than the Father. And actually what it did was reveal that the Son, the Lord, is highly exalted over heaven and earth. Verses 4 through 6 says, Every man who has something on his head while praying or prophesying disgraces his head. That every woman who has her head uncovered while praying or prophesying disgraces her head. For she is one and the same as the woman whose head is shaved. For if a woman does not cover her head, let her also have her hair cut off. But if it is disgraceful for a woman to have her hair cut off or her head shaved, let, the, let her cover her head. Now, I, I don't have time to go over every detail in this passage. Uh, so, like, for instance, we will cover praying and prophesying when we get more into chapter 14 of 1 Corinthians. But suffice to say for here, I think what Paul's talking about is um, roles within the worship service uh, that is about general participation uh, with the inclusion of women here. Um, but what Paul is getting at as his main point is he is speaking now about the order and decorum specifically within the Christian worship service. He says a man should not have anything, right, something on his head. It disgraces his head. Now, this is um, interesting because when we start looking at the wording here is where we really start to understand the context and what Paul is actually trying to communicate. A man should not have anything coming down from his head that veils him. The word there for head covering is actually not um, like a little ornament on top of the head. That's not how that is translated. That's not how it's ever been understood, and it's not how it's used in the Old Testament either. The idea is a veil. It's a veil. And um, so what 
Paul is saying here is that a man would disgrace his head if he were to have um, a veil, so to speak, hanging down from his head. Now, the Greek here is kata kephale ekon, and the reason why this is important, I don't, I try not to bring up Greek too much, but the reason why it's important is because the, the, the wording here is a participle in Greek that is lacking a subject. So a lot of times what translations will try to do is say, they'll put, if you look at your translation, it'll say something on his head, and that'll be in italics. That italics is an indication that they're supplementing a subject there because there's none. Literally, it just says um, that every man ha- who has something down from his head, or not even the something, just has down from his head, disgraces his head. So we need, to, we need to look at the passage and say, okay, so what is Paul, what is the subject then? Because usually when you have a participle, what it means is later on, Paul's going to bring up a subject, and that's the subject that we're talking about. Those of you who are still with me, <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to make a huge point here to show you that what Paul is not getting at, and I'll just, I'll just you know, give up the goat now. Paul is not saying a physical, literal, shawl kind of head covering. I'm not going to surprise you yet with what he is saying, but he is not talking about a physical, literal, artificial head covering. Um, But then he says, but a woman who does not veil her head, and in this case the subject is here, it's the word for veiled, who does not veil her head, disgraces her head. Now let me pause real quick. This This is the point where some try to really take this passage and they say, well, you know, Really what's going on here is Paul is appealing to the court cultural norms of the day. And I want us to pause there for a second and say that I think this is actually dangerous and wrongful thinking for uh, two reasons. First, uh, hermeneutically, right, when we try to look at the text of Scripture and interpret what it's saying, we need to realize that Scripture is God-breathed and it is normative, that means. It, it is not about culture. It goes beyond and transcends culture unless it specifically says that it's speaking to a certain cultural function. So unless it is stated otherwise, it needs to be taken as normative for today. This means that interpreters do not have the right to determine what is cultural unless the text actually says so. And the danger of this, by the way, is not just with this passage. The danger of this is what people have tended to do when they don't like what a passage says or that it's really difficult to apply or translate is they go, well, it must be cultural. And they'll do a really good job of showing you how what is being said fits within a cultural context of the day. But they do this with arguments um, about uh, gender roles within the church and about uh, sexuality. And so they appeal to these passages really to get out of uh, sin in the culture. And if Paul is not speaking about culture, if Paul is just speaking about the culture of the day, then we don't really need to take this literally. And if you do that with this passage, you neglect that Paul never in this passage appeals to culture once. But instead, he makes his argument based on creation and nature, the relationship of God and man, and even the spiritual realm. 
There is nothing about this passage that alludes to the influence of the surrounding culture. Um, And this is important to know, especially if we take a literal hermeneutic of Scripture, which is that Scripture is to be taken literally unless otherwise telling us. And that's the first reason. The second reason is that if we do take it as cultural, then we need to recognize that our modern culture today is the outlier. We're the ones who are wrong. The cultural norms of that day regarding a shawl or a public kind of head covering that would have been cultural pretty much continued across the board in the church until the 1960s. And what happened in the 1960s? The sexual revolution. In fact, many churches today outside of the, you know, modern West still practice head coverings during the worship service. So if you appeal to culture, then I would say that based on what Paul says in verse 16, that the church today in the West is in sin because we're the ones who are being contentious. Because it's something that virtually all churches practiced until the 60s. And so therefore, I would argue that the culture that we live in today is then wrong because it has been too heavily influenced by the sexual revolution and we need to reclaim what Paul says about veils and repent. So therefore, it's a good thing that I don't think it's cultural. And it's partially because I don't think Paul is speaking about an artificial veil. And so we have two questions in this passage to answer. What does it mean then to veil one's head? And who or what is being disgraced? Let's start with the second question. What does it mean to disgrace the head? See, as I said, Paul moves back and forth between the spiritual head and the physical head in the passage. And so the head being disgraced, in this case, is the authority over either party. A man disgraces Christ when he veils his head with anything because it blurs the lines or even reverses the symbols of Christian headship between male and female. For women... The head being disgraced is both the authority placed over them, the man, in verse 5, and her own personhood, described in verse 6. So to be unveiled in this sense not only is a sign of rebellion against the created order, but it is also akin to shaving her head and therefore is forsaking the sign of glory that God has given to her, described in verses 13 through 15. This then leads us into verses 7 through 12. For a man ought not to have his head covered since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man does not originate from woman, but woman from man. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. However, In the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. So, as Paul is saying here, man is the glory of God, he's the image and glory of God, and the point that Paul is getting at is, God is the only one who is to be exalted in the worship service, and man 
given the responsibility of dominion over the created order, typified through the priestly work that Adam was given in the garden, is responsible for making sure that that is the case. He is the one given the responsibility for making sure that that is the case in the worship services God as well. So as pastors and leaders in the church, the responsibility falls on us that when we come in on a Sunday morning, it's not about rock and roll and it's not about entertainment and it's not about, hey, check out my form-fitting shirt and how good I look, look at my hair and all these things. No, it's about the focus being on the Lord himself. And anything that detracts from that is a problem. But women are given this responsibility as well in creation. They are also called to the dominion mandate and to help the man, and that is their role. They were created to be the helper of the man. So that's why Paul says women are the glory, or a woman is the glory of man. So what does it mean then that the woman is the glory of man? This is the part of the sermon that I'm actually very excited about. When we talk about gender roles, sometimes we get so hung up on who, like the, the leader and why can't women be leaders? Why is it that men are the only ones who are allowed to preach in the service? Why can't women preach? And when we speak in those terms, we've missed the glorious role that God has given women. There is a reason why your story is a significant and unique story in Genesis 2. You, women, are the pinnacle of creation. You don't have the responsibility to lead like men do, but you have been given a unique place in creation that Scripture throughout Old and New Testament make clear that the most beautiful creature that God has created is a woman. She is called the crown of her husband. She is the jewel of the created order. She is presented to man, Eve presented to man as the veiled beauty of all creation only to be presented and revealed by God. Like a jewel, she is to be treasured and cherished, and like a crown to a king, the book of Proverbs and the Song of Solomon talk about a woman, a godly woman, as being of greater worth than silver and gold and land and horses and chariots. And her value is so high that man is given the charge to protect her at all costs. So even within Scripture, we see that a man's life is more expendable than the life of a woman because he is the one called to go out to war and protect and defend, whether it's a nation or a family or a wife. And this is not objectifying the woman. It's not just about looks. What is being glorified in creation is not just her face or her looks. It's her role. It's her beauty in her femininity. She is the nurturer of creation. She is the beautifier of creation. She leads creation as man's helper. And these terms, by the way, used of woman, nurturer, beautifier, helper, these are terms used of God himself. 
the Holy Spirit. And she is the one who is the primary, uh, lost my notes here. She is the one who is the primary creator of God's image through childbirth. See, man's curse is hard labor in the production of the ground, but woman's curse is hard labor in the production and producing of more of God's image bearers on earth. Her nature is also representative of the church. The church is the bride of Christ. As Eve was presented to Adam, so the church is presented to Christ. So she represents the typology and product of the resurrection. However, that means because she is the pinnacle of uh, the beauty of creation in her femininity and in her nature, mankind has the propensity to worship the glory of creation and to exalt the glory of man, which is the woman. And the danger is not just in the world, but also in the worship service. So as we rebel against God, we learn that man has become, like males, right, have become passive and weak, even to the point of desiring the role of the women. See, it's not just in our culture that women desire the role of men. What we also see is that as these, as these lines get blurred, men desire the role of women as well. And when this ta- happens... We see historically that this happens before a culture collapses. And so men desire the role, the, desiring the role of women and women desiring the role of men were nurturing and beautifying and helping and creating are not enough for her. She wants to lead. And what suffers when this happens? Creation does. When man and woman forsake their created purpose, they destroy creation. This is what happened in Genesis 3. They destroy societies, they destroy nations, they destroy families, and then they destroy themselves. And I feel like I really, that, that, that's pretty obvious when we look around us and we see men and women forsaking their roles, what tends to happen? Chaos tends to happen and confusion and destruction. So men forsake their role as leaders and women forsake their roles as helpers. And what ends up happening is, uh, you know, they um, destroy the family, they murder their children. Men stay at home and nurture as women go off to war. Men want to celebrate their feminine side and society wants to destroy toxic masculinity. Men want to sleep with men and women want to sleep with women. And now men and women are even trying to biologically alter themselves to become the opposite gender to the point of even total and irreversible mutilation. See, it's not just, oh, 
We're worried about what Paul's saying about how we dress. And that doesn't apply to our culture anymore. It's so much deeper than that. And the consequences, the consequences are so much more far-reaching than simply, hey, can we just decide how we want to cut our hair or how we want to dress? When we blur the lines of God's created order, and as cultures do that, cultures collapse. And they go into chaos where you cannot distinguish the two anymore. And if you try to distinguish the two, right? Like, I don't, thankfully, you know, we're not like a popular 10,000 views kind of church. Otherwise, this sermon might not even at this point be able to stream, right? I'd get censored for even, you know, commenting like I am right now. How dare he say that there's a difference between men and women? If a man wants to be a woman, go ahead. But no, the Bible says that this is chaotic. This, this goes against nature itself. And so Paul says this and warns against this here as in other passages. And he says, look, let this never be the case within the house of God. Men be men and glorify Christ as leaders. And women be women and glorify Christ by being the beauty of creation and the glory and helper of man. Paul then doubles down, saying that the other reason women should have this uh, sign of authority on her head is because of angels, right? So this male and female distinction, even in the way Paul would say that we veil ourselves, is a display to the spiritual realm as well. By the way, this is another reason that this simply can't just be about culture. If it's just simply about Rome, hey, in Roman culture, you know, they, women were to wear veils and the men didn't, and um, that's part of their culture that doesn't really relate to us now. Well, but Paul doesn't appeal to that. Again, he appeals even to the spiritual realm. Why should women wear a sign of authority on their head, whatever that may be at this point? Because of the angels. The spiritual realm does not submit to the culture changes. Um, Now, Paul is not, he makes it clear again that he's not saying that one is better than the other, right? This is what he says in verse 11, man and woman are equally in need of one another and both display the image and glory of God through their created roles of maleness and femaleness, right? So he says, however, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as the woman originates from man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. So what, what Paul is saying here is you, you can't be fighting each other for these roles here. You can't be blurring the lines in these roles, and you shouldn't want to. Right? Men should not be lording their leadership over women. Paul talks about how we are to lead, and the Bible talks about with this gentleness and, and understanding. But in the same token, women should not be desiring the leadership role of men. It's a perversion of creation. And he says, why? Because the, man, the woman sorry, originates from the man. Why is man in leadership? Because man was the first of the created order and woman was taken out of the side of man. But lest man think that therefore he is above women in the, as, as an image bearer and more glorious than the woman, Paul reminds him, I, 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 don't you forget that each and every one of you came from a woman. You do not exist right, 
unless woman was taken out of the side of Adam. And so what he's showing is there is this balance in the relationship and this complementing in the relationship between the two. You can't have one without the other. You can't have uh, men sitting there saying, you know, hey, look at the boys club, right? Like, we don't need women. And you can't have women saying, hey, I don't need no man. That's the disruption of creation, and it destroys the church as well. And Paul just, he, he won't have it. So then he says, judge for yourself, starting in verse 13, judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not even nature itself teach that if you, uh, sorry, that if a man has long hair, it is a dishonor to him. But if a woman has long hair, it is a glory to her. For her hair is given to her for a covering. But if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. So these closing verses then help us answer that question of what then is this veil that Paul is talking about? Well, Paul begins by asking this rhetorical question, is it proper for a woman to pray in the worship service unveiled? And the obvious answer is no. So then Paul appeals to what nature teaches and this word here for nature, by the way, is the same word that is used in Romans 1.26. This is the natural design of creation that we all know, but as Romans 1.26 tells us, this is the design of creation that we as sinners, as sons of Adam and Eve, have rebelled against. We have exchanged, as Paul says, the natural functions for unnatural Nature teaches that there is and must be distinctions between maleness and femaleness. And as Paul's going to say here, even in the way we look and adorn ourselves. And so Paul uses the example of long hair. He says, when men have long hair, all right, this is where I'm going to get in trouble here, all right? But I got some good applications, so bear with me. He says, when men have long hair, they dishonor themselves. So we know now what the subject is that Paul is talking about all the way back in that previous verse. What is it that is hanging down from the head? What is it that is veiling the man? It is the long hair. Back in verses 5 and 6, Paul tells his reader that a woman disgraces her head and her, uh, her head when she unveils her head because it is like shaving her hair. And then Paul gives this contrast, right? On the contrary, Paul says, her long hair is to her glory because it is the symbol of her submission and reflects her unique place within creation. And in verse 15, Paul says that God has given women, their long hair, as a covering garment. Now, if you look at verse uh, 15, it says, for her hair is given to her for a covering. But there's a different word that Paul's using there. He's not using the same word that he's been using for head covering, or as we've been translating as veiling in this previous passage. It's a completely different word. This word is a kind of covering garment. And what's interesting is the way that Paul makes this transition is that when the Bible, especially in the New Testament, in the new creation, uses this term as covering, we can see why it is so important that Paul is adamant about this. 
that the word is used in spiritual context and in an eschatological context when referring to a garment. So Paul is saying that the glorious hair that the Lord has given you, women, is a covering garment, and it has spiritual and even eschatological significance. It is the same verbal form that is used in Revelation for the salvific covering garment covered in blood, the robe garment that Christ wears. And it is also the same word that is used for the glorious eternal covering that we see as garment translated in our English, garment that we wear in the presence of God for eternity. So I believe that the veil that Paul is talking about in this passage, based on how he closes out here, is long hair. However, I also believe that there are enough differing views on this passage that it would be wrong with me to bind someone's conscience on their hair length. The reason why is because then you get into, because I know some of you are probably already asking this question, how long? How long is too long? How short is too short? Well, Paul doesn't give us that answer. I think Paul is saying that it is important in his design for women to not look like the men of the culture and for men to not look like women. There needs to be distinction between the two. Long hair is a sign, not because of just our culture around us or because of the Roman culture of the day. Long hair is a sign of femininity by nature. And a culture may disagree but normally those cultures are ones that have rebelled against nature anyway. Like our own. Long hair is a garment of submission. It's the garment of submission. The blood-stained robe that Christ wears is a garment of his submission to the Father. It is a garment of submission. The glorious linen garments that we wear for eternity is a sign of submission to the glory of God that we here on earth were changed and our lives were submitted to him. It is the glorious covering over his bride, the church. And therefore, Paul can say that a woman's long hair is to her glory because it brings glory to God in precisely what it symbolizes. It symbolizes the salvation and eschatological work of God And then Paul ends in verse 16 saying, but if one is inclined to be contentious, we have no other practice, nor have the churches of God. The idea is that this is practiced universally in all the churches. And so Paul's saying is that if you are going to argue against this, recognize that there is no other practice. This is universal within the church. It's not just for you guys in Corinth. And therefore, it's further evidence that it is not just cultural. Okay. So, what does this mean then for us today? It means that the distinction between men and women in the body of Christ still exists and must be displayed visibly in orderly 
worship. Men must adorn themselves as men, and women must adorn themselves as women. Both with modesty. And as I said earlier in the sermon, not drawing attention to ourselves through trying to look unique or overly decorated or totally beautified or adorning ourselves too extravagantly, not trying to show off our brand or our style. And you may say, well, that sounds kind of boring, and that's because it's not about you. The worship service is not about me. It's not about people seeing us and looking at us. It's about all our attention being focused on God. It's about completely directing our focus on the right direction, and that involves everything, even down to the way we prepare ourselves for the worship service. It should glorify the Lord and not ourselves. Okay, so now I'm going to go a little bit deeper in that. We're almost done here. I said it's going to be a little bit longer, but if I, if I just started with this, you'd be like, what in the world is he talking about? Right? And you'd probably still walk out of here thinking, look, do I need to wear a, a, a head covering or not? <laughs> Hopefully that's answered by now, right? But men, this means that we need to take care of ourselves. We are called to be leaders, right? So we need to take care of ourselves like the leaders that God has created us to be. Men, don't just roll out of bed and stumble into church. Part of looking like a man is not looking lazy and out of sorts. Dress nice on Sunday. This probably means don't dress just like you do at work or like you're going to a Bears game afterward. Get yourself a nice shirt, some nice pants, take a shower, run a comb through your hair. Maybe some of you need to get a haircut, get cleaned up. And I would also say, and this is, you know, more of my opinion on anything, either shave or grow facial hair like a beard, right? Like clean up. Don't look like, you, you know, just I forgot to shave the last three days. Get cleaned up when you come to service. Look like a leader. Look like someone who's presentable. And dress like men, not women. Don't come to church looking like you just got off the fashion runway with skinny jeans and a shirt that shows how often you go to the gym. Don't be coming here dressing in a way to try to impress the ladies. Right? And ladies... Let me start by praising you, because actually, hold on, I I hear it, I hear it. (laughs) This is, (laughs) I actually do uh, want to praise you because I see you on a weekly or even more than a weekly basis, and I can attest to the fact that you do dress very modest and very, very feminine here. I don't think it's very difficult to discern who's a woman and who's a guy. And we see that within the leadership as well. And before the men think that I'm just being hard on the men and gentle with the women, first of all, let me tell you, I'm called to be gentle with the women, okay? Doesn't mean I won't say what I believe Scripture teaches, but it always starts with men taking responsibility for themselves first, right? Eve didn't fall on her own. 
she fell, and the responsibility was laid on the man. Right? So let me say then, make sure, women, that you two are balancing and taking care to look modest and presentable and feminine on Sunday morning without over-adorning yourself to draw attention to your beauty or to your status. Don't look and dress like you hate your feminine role. And I would say, based on Paul here, if possible, have hair that is done in a feminine way and in a feminine style. Done nicely on Sunday morning. And remember, it's long hair because it's your glory because of what it symbolizes, not because it draws attention to yourself. God gave it to you as a garment to display your femininity. This does not mean, though, that you need to wear a dress or a skirt. It does not mean that I'm here trying to decide what kind of hairstyle you have to have. I'm not a fashion expert. So the simple thing would just be men, wear men clothes and girls, wear girl clothes. Men, clean up and take care of yourself to look like a leader. Women, clean up and take care of yourself to look like, you know, the beautifier of creation that you are. And it's not just, you know, hey, wear your Sunday best. It's not about that. It's about what is displayed before God when we come together in worship. He and the heavenly realm delight in looking at us and seeing us enjoying how he made us. It's part of our worship. And because we are here for the purpose of bringing glory to one God and not to ourselves, this means we aren't supposed to look too drab, but it means we're also not supposed to look too extravagant. We need to look presentable for our gender. And so everything we do even in the way that we adorn ourselves, should bring the focus to the Lord, our focus to the cross, our focus to the resurrection, and our focus in our total submission to Him. I hope that was not too painful. We're going to take communion now. And I want to pray for communion this morning, and I would just ask that um, when we take communion, this is for believers. So I'd ask that if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ, that you would refrain from partaking of the table this morning. But as I pray, um, this is an opportunity for us to remember the gospel and remember that our salvation was purchased at a price. That blood-stained robe in revelation of Christ is the symbol of the fact that Christ was blood-stained on the cross and took the entire wrath of God that should have been poured out on us for our sins onto himself. And when we take communion this morning, that's what we're remembering and celebrating together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for your word, even the difficult passages, God. And I pray, Lord, that we would be uh, encouraged by how you created us. 
I pray, Lord, now as we take communion, that it would be a time of remembering and celebrating the gospel and what you have purchased for us through your blood. And with hope, we partake and proclaim the good news that you have promised to return. We thank you, Lord Jesus, in your name. Amen.